This morning we'll be in Romans chapter 15, so let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn there with me. Romans chapter 15. As individuals, we love to be a part of something that is bigger than us. It would be pretty cool to be able to beat a world swimming, swimming record at a meet, but doing it at the Olympics for your whole country while they're rooting you on would be even better. Getting a patent on an invention that you've been working on for years would be pretty exciting, but even better would be to make an invention that actually helps millions of people to be able to live a more quality life because of your invention. We love to be part of something that's bigger than ourselves. And this, I think, is also true in the spiritual realm as well. And the truth is is that we can go about our Christian lives thinking that our individual growth and, and our individual praise of God is most important. And yet, God has made us something to be part of something that is much bigger than ourselves right here within this body of believers. God is working to bring universal praise to Himself from various kinds of otherwise people who would otherwise be incompatible. People from various backgrounds. But, but people who are willing to set aside their personal convictions over non-essential issues in order that they together can with one voice glorify the God who saved them. And the reality is that God has promised to bring incompatible people together. He had promised that in the Old Testament and Christ came together. And He came together with us who were incompatible with Him. He unified Himself with us And so we now have a responsibility not just to be united with Christ. That's kind of the individual mindset. Like, I just need to make sure that I'm united with Christ. Well, part of what Christ united you to Himself to do was to be united to one another. He not only came to reconcile you to God, but to reconcile you to each other. That is, other people who have been bought by the blood of Christ. And so as we accept one another as Paul has been encouraging us to do in these last couple of chapters, we are fulfilling what God intended to do in this world. And we, in a way, actually bring into culmination all of what God is doing in human history. That is, we bring the end times closer and closer as we come together in greater unity. Let me show you that from the text, but in order to do so, we first need to read the text and then we'll we'll study it together. So I'm going to begin reading in... Romans chapter 15 with verse 7. This is the Word of God. Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for His mercy. As it is written... Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. Again, he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. Again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, and him shall the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Selfless acceptance of my brother honors God. It honors God by following the example of Christ, by fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, and by completing God's plan. Paul here is calling us to selfless acceptance of one another. That is, to set aside the things that would otherwise divide us and come together around a common purpose of honoring God. And the way that we honor God is by following the example of Christ, by fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. That's what all those Old Testament texts were for, to show us that this is what God had planned to do from the beginning. To bring both Jews and Gentiles together. And then, thirdly, to complete God's plan. And we'll see that in the text. So let me first begin with the main command here in verse 7. See if I can get to it. There we go. Selfless, selfless acceptance of my brother honors God. That's the first part of the, the theme, I think, of this text. Really, we could just stop there, but I, I expanded it out so you could see how it all comes together. Selfless acceptance of my brother honors God. We see this in the first part of verse 7. Therefore, accept one another. And then the first part of verse 9. And for the Gentiles to glorify God for His mercy. Well, how do they glorify God for His mercy? Well, we do it by coming together, accepting one another. Paul is, is bringing his letter to a close. In this passage, he finishes up his argument regarding how the strong and the weak are to treat each other. And then in chapter 15, verse 14 and following, Paul, Paul is going to talk about his past and future travel plans. And then in chapter 16, uh, we'll see in a couple weeks, he, he will finish with greetings, just reminding them about his love for them and, and giving individual greetings. But, but notice this first command here in chapter 7, the main command, I think, of the whole text, and that is accept one another, the whole text that we're looking at. The word accept is the exact same word that we saw in chapter 14, verse 1. You can, you can uh, take a look at that if you'd like to. Accept one another. Paul began his exhortation in chapters 14 and 15 by saying you need to accept one another. The word accept doesn't mean just tolerate, just kind of put up with other people and their differences. Instead, this word accept means to receive like you would a brother. It's the same word that's used in Acts chapter 28. Do you remember when the people of Malta had accepted the shipwrecked, the shipwrecked people, including Paul, and, and they, allowed, they made a fire for them and, and they allowed them to have some of their food and so on. That, that word is used there in Acts 28 too. It says they kindled the fire and accepted us all. They didn't simply tolerate them, you know, you know, you're on our island, but we'll put up with you. No, they accepted them like a brother, like, welcome, here, we'll, we'll help you get warm and, and, and fed. They provided for their needs. They treated them like family. And, and that's what Paul is calling us to do, like he did in chapter 14, that we need to treat one another like we would family. That is, despite our differing convictions, we don't just sprinkle a little toleration with our, our despising of them. You know, that person is just... They just they, uh, they grate on me and I just can't stand them and so I'll, I'll put up with them a little bit. Instead, we treat them like a brother or a sister. Now, I want to be clear as, as I've tried to throughout these two chapters that, that our acceptance of them uh, does not include a toleration of heresy. So we, we don't treat them like a brother when they're speaking heresy, when they're, when they're um, turning away from the faith, when they're living like unbelievers. Okay? That's not acceptance. That's actually 
that, that's not the, the biblical kind of acceptance that, that God is looking for here. That's actually a, a toleration of sin. We need to expose those things as well as ask others to expose those things in us. Right? We, we should be welcome to that kind of, of correction as well because the humble are willing to accept correction while the proud, they, they reject it. They, they resist any kind of correction. And so here what Paul is calling for is not acceptance over uh, or a toleration over essential issues. He's saying, you know, if you, you believe that salvation comes by works, that's okay. We believe that salvation comes by faith alone and Christ alone. And so we'll just all get along together. That's not what he's calling for. He's saying when it comes to non-essential issues, things that are not central to the gospel, things that are not clear in the scriptures, then those are the things that you need to accept one another. We're going to have differences of opinion. We're going to have differences of conviction. And we need to be willing to welcome that person despite their difference. Of course, the example that we've been um, using is the one that Paul's been using, which is the eating of meat. Uh, some people saw they had a, a, their conscience didn't allow them to eat meat because it could have been sacrificed to an idol. And, and Paul's saying, I know that it's okay to be able to eat that kind of meat. And so, um, but for the sake of that person, that weaker brother, I'm going to accept them. And, uh, and that's the kind of acceptance that we ought to have for one another despite differing convictions. So, uh, it's commanded there in verse 7, and then it, here's where we see that it honors God in verse 9. And for the Gentiles to glorify God for His mercy. Selfless acceptance glorifies God. The same idea is seen at the end of verse 7. Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. So we might look at, at, at God's desire for our unity, be, unity to be kind of an afterthought, like I mentioned last hour, that, that God kind of you know, made the Jews to be the center of His program. You are My people and I will be your God. He made them to be at the center of His program. But then through Christ... God opened up the door for Gentiles to, to, to come into his, his, um, his family. And so now, God has these two different groups of people. He has Jews and He has Gentiles, and now He has to figure out a way to somehow make it work. That's not, the, that's not what happened at all. It, the, the unity that God is calling for in us now was not an afterthought. The reality is that this harmony between Jews and Gentiles is actually the point. It's at the center of what God is doing. This co-unity with people who have a number of disputable differences was all part of God's plan. He was not reacting to this kind of infighting that was going on within the churches and saying, now I, I need to come up with a way that we can unify. This was actually the outworking of His plan. This is the main point of the Gospel. The Gospel was not primarily about a nation, the Jews. Even though that nation is important and that nation would birth our Savior, the Gospel is not about a nation. The the Gospel primarily is about worshiping God. Specifically, as Jews and Gentiles come together, and, and this, for the Jews, was hard to understand. It was hard to believe. Even believing Jews would find this hard to swallow. Because they thought that the Gospel revolved around them. If you want to have a part in this Gospel, you need to come and be proselytized. You need to come and join our group and follow our, all of our Jewish rituals and traditions. 
And what, what Jesus is saying, no, that's not the case at all. You're going to have people, Jews, who are different than you. And, and you are going to come together through the church and you're going to come to glorify me. So, so the, the uh, unity of Jews and Gentiles was not just an afterthought. It was actually at the center of what God was doing. Selfless acceptance of my brother honors God. It honors God and the way that we see it is that it's modeled by Christ or modeled in Christ. Selfless acceptance of my brother is modeled in Christ. So if we want to see, um, maybe you look at, at that brother or sister in Christ on the other side of the auditorium and you think, you know, there's no way I can get along with that person. We are simply incompatible. And, and so if you lack proper motivation to welcome a brother who, is, who has some difference with you on non-essential issues... Then, then I would recommend that you consider our Savior like Paul is calling us to do here. Because Christ accepted us who are incompatible with Him. Look at verse 7. It says, Therefore accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the Father. Was there ever anyone in history more incompatible than Christ with sinners. The Christ, the Holy One of God, the, the Son of God in human flesh with those who are opposed to Him. Was there any, everyone, ever anyone any more incompatible than Christ and sinners? And yet, what did Christ do? It tells us there that He accepted us. He welcomed us like a brother and so the, the point is that if Christ could welcome those who were different than He, then can we not welcome believers who are bought by the same blood of Christ even though they have different convictions than us? Can we not welcome them and, and be united with them around a common purpose? If Christ did it, so can we. So that's where we get our, our example we, we look around and say, I can't be compatible with that person. They're just so much different than I am. But, but really, in Christ, we are alike. We, are, we, are, uh, we, we have a common goal, a common purpose. The very reason in verse 8 that Jesus came as a minister to the Jews was so that He could fulfill God's plan. It says, For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision. Christ was born a Jew. He, he became a servant to the Jews. He ministered to the Jews. But He came to extend His grace not only to the Jews, right? But praise God, He came to extend His grace to the Gentiles. Gentiles like you and me. And He did all of this so that God could be praised. Christ did this for our benefit. He, he became compatible. He welcomed those with whom He was incompatible. And so Paul's saying, listen, if Christ can do that, and He did, and He does, then you can do that as well. And you should do that. Selfless acceptance of my brother is modeled in Christ. Number three, selfless acceptance of my brother completes God's plan. Completes God's plan. Really, inside of this idea is that selfless acceptance of my brother is fulfilled in Old Testament history. That is, Old Testament prophecy promises that, that we are going to accept one another, that we're going to come together. Maybe you haven't thought about that. Maybe you just think, well, you know, we, we kind of have to get along because how else are we going to, to exist? But, 
But really, this is part of God's prophecy from the Old Testament. Through the prophets, He said that we would get along. That we would get along with those with whom we were incompatible otherwise. And, and in that way, it actually completes what God is doing in the world. As we fulfill what God had promised in the Old Testament, we actually bring closer to culmination what God is doing at the end of all, to- at the end of all things, which is to bring all people in subjection to Christ. And so we follow Christ's example in order to complete the work that God had planned in the Old Testament. The promise of the Old Testament provided direct benefits for the Jews. That, that through you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So you would, you would be in a privileged position if you were a Jew. You are a descendant of Abraham. But, but, but God also said in that promise to Abraham that I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you so that the Gentiles also have a benefit that comes from the Abrahamic promise. And Jesus came to confirm that these benefits would go not just to the Jews, but that the door would be opened to the Gentiles. And so this plan of bringing these incompatible groups together was something that God had set, set um, an agenda. He had planned in the Old Testament. Let me show you that this, these two groups were planned to come together by God in the Old Testament. And then I'll show you how we as a church fit into that plan. So first, we have uh, confirmation from the Old Testament. And what Paul does here is he draws from four parts of the Old Testament Scriptures. He begins with confirmation from the historical books. This, uh, this uh, first quotation comes from a psalm, but it also comes from 2 Samuel 22. And uh, let me just read the text first. It's in verse 9, Romans 15, verse 9. And for the Gentiles to glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, here's the first promise from the Old Testament that should say, hey, God is working to bring this together. We are fulfillment of that. Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. Here, David in 2 Samuel 22 writes a song when God had delivered from his enemies and from Saul. And as part of the song, he's saying, uh, he's saying I will praise you among the Gentiles. I'm going to give praise to you among the nations. And, and so now Paul is applying this praise song here in chapter 15. He's saying, I'm applying this praise song to, to the Messiah. That He is going to praise the Father, that is Jesus, is going to praise the Father among the nations, the Gentiles. So this idea of Jews and Gentiles coming together to sing praise to God in one accord was not a new convention that Paul came up with. But it was a historical reality that is now being fulfilled through Christ. Christ is saying, uh, as a fulfillment of what David had said, I'm going to give praise to you among the Gentiles. I'm going to praise you not just among the Jews, which I am, but among the Gentiles as well. And so this was promised in the historical books, but it was also promised in the law in verse 10. We have confirmation from the law, that is the writings of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. Verse 10 reads, again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. The confirmation of the Jews and the Gentiles coming together or being compatible 
was also confirmed in the law. Here in verse 10, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 32 where Moses is singing a song of praise. And he, who is the leader of Israel, is is calling on, notice, the Gentiles to join him in praising God. He's not saying rejoice, O Jews. He's saying, you Gentiles, come and rejoice with God's people, Israel. Come alongside of us and, and give praise to God. And so this compatibility, this coming together, this welcoming of one another, this mutual acceptance was something that was planned by God in the law and in the historical books, but also in the writings. In verse 11, And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise Him. This is from Psalm 117, the shortest, the shortest psalm. Only two verses. And again, the idea is that the, there is going to be a, a welcoming of one another, of Jews and Gentiles coming together in common praise to God. And it's confirmed in the, in the writings, that is, the, the poetic books. And here Paul is quoting from, from the first verse of this psalm. And, and this psalm is calling for the whole world, not just Jews, to praise God. But notice it says, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples, all the nations, praise God. Not just the Jews, but all the nations join in praise of God. And the reason for that praise in Psalm 117 too, is because God is loyally loving and God is true. And so, so not only do the Jews have reason to praise Him, but the Gentiles do as well. Confirmation from the historical books, the law, the writings, and then fourthly, as you can guess, the prophets. And here, uh, Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, and he says in verse 12, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. What Paul's saying is that the prophets also predicted that Jews and Gentiles would welcome one another and that they would come together to praise God. Isaiah 11.10 promises that a descendant of Jesse will come to rule over the Gentiles and that he would become the source of hope not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. And that is this Messiah, Jesus the Christ. That He is this descendant of David. He's the root of Jesse. And it would be clear and obvious that the root of Jesse would rule over the Jews. I mean, no one would question that. That's what He came to do. He's come to save His people from, his sin, from their sins. But now what Paul is saying is that, that this same Messiah would also rule over the Gentiles and would be their hope. And what he's saying is that these two groups are going to be joined together under one Messiah, under a common Savior. And so here's how this applies to us. God planned that Jews and Gentiles would come together under the rule of Christ to praise God for His mercy. And that's what you see as the common theme in the Old Testament passages. Sometimes we gloss over that as we're going through the Old Testament. We think the Old Testament Testament is all about the Jews and what God's doing in the Jewish people. And, And a lot of it is. But what Paul is saying is don't miss what God had planned and what God had put in there, little little um, crumbs or little clues by which we could follow God's plan that He was working to save Gentiles as well. To bring them all together under a common purpose, a common Savior. And so God had planned it from the beginning that we would be a part of that great blessing that comes through Christ. 
And so here's how we fit into it. As we accept one another, we are fulfilling what God intended to do in the world. Do you see what's happening here? We are actually fulfilling these promises. When, when Moses and when David and, and, and when the, uh, the psalmist and, and Isaiah, when they all say, hey, Gentiles, you come in and praise God together with us. As we do that together in this place, we are fulfilling what God has promised would happen. We're bringing to fruition, we're bringing to culmination God's final plan where all peoples, that that we will have people from every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation. Not from every tribe within the Jews, right? but from every tribe among the earth and kindred and tongue and nation will come and worship the Lamb who is slain not just for Jews, but for Gentiles as well. And so we ought to be welcoming one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, despite our disputed differences, to bring into culmination what God is doing in the world. He's bringing together those who were once estranged. Not just estranged from Him, but estranged from each other. So how does this happen? Verse 13, how does this all come in to, to place. We have the example. We know why God's doing it, but how do we do it? And, and so finally here, we see number four, selfless acceptance of my brother is empowered by God's Spirit through prayer in verse 13. So how do we make it happen? Because if you're thinking like me, there are pockets of resistance, aren't there? Where, where I have this resistance in my heart against someone else, and, and, and you have resistance in your heart against someone else, perhaps, that is incompatible with your ideas. So how does this come into to play? How do we make this happen? How do we become complicit? And, and, and the way that it happens is simply by submitting ourselves to God's plan. And, and the way that it happens is through prayer. The means is through prayer. As Paul often does, he stops in the middle of his writing to, to just pray in the midst of his exhortation. And he writes down his prayer for our benefit, for the benefit of the people to whom he's writing. And he does this in order to acknowledge that mutual acceptance of in- incompatible people is impossible apart from the work of God. So we can't just kind of work up enough energy and say, all right, I'm just going to grip my teeth and make sure that this happens. I don't want to, but I'm going to do it. It cannot happen on our own. It is impossible. Mutual acceptance doesn't happen apart from the work of God. God is the source of our hope and He is the one who calls, who calls on us and, and gives us hope and, and, and to abound in hope. Notice uh, verse 12. And again, Isaiah says, there shall, come in the, uh, from the root, there shall come the root of Jesse and he arises to rule over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that you will abound in hope. So the source of our hope is God and, and specifically in His Savior, Jesus Christ, verse 12. And He's filling us up with that hope so that we will abound in hope. So Paul prays for that. He says, may God fill you up with, with that because He's the source of that. But he also prays in the middle, the middle line there, the second line, that we would have joy and peace. And the reason for this prayer is that dissension or discord over non-essential issues will lead to joylessness, right? And division, naturally. 
when when we have arguments, when we uh, when when we go against one another, when we're unwilling to welcome one another, then there's going to be a joylessness among us. There's going to be a division. And so Paul's saying, I pray that God will fill you up, that He will unite you together around what's most important, the essential issues, not the non-essential ones. And all that happens, notice at the end of verse 13, by the power of the Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit of God to come among us and unite us, to to cause us to see and, and be a part of what He's already established here. As Paul says in Ephesians, to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So by nature, we as sinners tend to, to divide, don't we? we? We tend to want our own way. And, and what we are called to do in Ephesians is to maintain what the Spirit has already established. He, through our salvation in Jesus Christ, our common bond that we have, has, has established unity. And so we're called to maintain that unity. But notice at the end of verse 13, we can't maintain it unless the Spirit gives us help. So He establishes the unity, but He also gives us the power to be able to maintain that unity. And so, mutual acceptance is something that honors God, something that we see modeled in Christ and, and something that, that, um, that is promised, that was promised in the Old Testament. So let me give you three implications this morning of what we've looked at today. Number one, we honor God when we welcome one another. We honor God. Remember, the word welcome just comes it's the idea of accept here in verse 7. We honor God when we accept one another. We accept them as a brother. The culmination of human history will be the, fulfill, the fulfillment of God's promises to bring together both Jews and Gentiles to praise Him as their God and to praise Jesus as their Messiah. In other words, the culmination of human history is the universal praise of God for His salvation. God is desiring to bring people together to praise Him and to praise the Lamb who was slain. So, so where do we draw the line? With whom are we supposed to welcome? Are we supposed to get along with? Where do we draw the line? Are we supposed to be unified about everything? Rupert Meldenius gives a helpful anecdote. He says, In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. So when it comes to the essentials of the Christian faith, we need to be united. We can't be divided over those things. We need to see what the Scriptures say and hold fast to those things and not let them go. We need to be united over those things. But when it comes to non-essential things, this is what we've been talking about in chapters 14 and 15. When it comes to things like eating of meat, when it comes to things like personal convictions over things that are not clear in the Scriptures, we need to, be, we need to have, recognize that we each have liberty as to how we engage in those things. But, but I love the end of that. In essentials, unity. and non-essentials, liberty. and all things, charity. That no matter how we believe with non-essential issues, We are willing to to show love to one another. We honor God when we do that. Number two, we honor God when we welcome one another. Let me add this part, with joy. We honor God when we welcome one another, not just for welcoming sake, but when we do it with joy. Did you notice the joyful spirit that's expected throughout this text in verse 9? 
give praise, verse 9. Uh, later says sing, verse 10. Rejoice, verse 11. Praise, and then praise again. Verse 12, hope. Verse 13, fill you with all joy and peace and abound in hope. See, God's expecting that this is not something that we just, you know, kind of, God, I'm going to honor you by begrudgingly and frustratingly tolerating one another as we go about our business of worshiping you. No, God expects that we accept one another with joy, filled with hope filled with the song-filled praise to His name that, that we love to come together and worship God because we have the same God and the same Savior. And we've been bought with a price. We've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ that paid for the same kinds of sins. So we honor God when we welcome one another, but we do it with joy. We honor Him when we do it with joy. And finally third implication is that we ought to see ourselves as part of God's larger plan. See ourselves individually and our church. We love to be a part of things that are bigger than us. And so a big, a big view of God's plan, right? And we look across the sweep of human history and Old Testament prophecy and see what God's doing today. It will help inform us and motivate us for what's going on in this local expression of Christ's body. It will help inform what we're doing for the sake of God's glory. Like We talk about glorifying God often, but, but how do we do that? And here's a specific way in which we can. And I find it interesting that Paul, in order to motivate the believers in this little city of Rome, tells them about the historical and geographical plan of God. Let me tell you what God has done historically. And he says that God has planned to bring all people together as fulfillment of His promise. And therefore, you believers in Rome, you become part of God's larger plan and get along to the glory of God. And you know, the reality is that God is the one who brings order out of chaos. We are the ones who bring chaos to the party. And we leave... We live in a chaotic world that is plagued by, by sin and its consequences. And yet, in the midst of a chaotic world, a world, we must be an ordered church of Jesus Christ that loves God supremely and values the work of Jesus Christ and who, who unites together despite our disputed differences in order to glorify God through the work of the Spirit. Listen to um, this one commentator, Christopher Ash, how he explains this, this truth from the passage. He says, The only hope for a broken world is to be reunited under God's Christ, the King in David's line, who will one day rule the world. The church in Rome is to anticipate this final worldwide rule by bowing together now in harmony before Christ. The point is not that people who don't like each other should come together and praise God happily. It is much bigger than that. It's that when incompatible people actually welcome one another and love each other sincerely, that's when we prove that God's King is bringing together the world under His rule. That this kingdom that's coming makes sense. That He promised to come and bring in all the nations to worship Him. And when, when, he's, when the world and the angelic realm look on at our little church and see people who are, who are incompatible, incompatible otherwise, 
that is apart from our common bond in Jesus Christ, when they see that we welcome one another, they see that God's King and His future rule is right. That's the way it ought to be. As we accept one another, we're fulfilling what God intended to do in the world. And we bring closer and closer the culmination of human history. And so, be a part of something much bigger than you. Don't come to worship God in your little silo. Like, I'm going to come here and get out what I want to get out and give out what I want to get out, but I'm going to try not to bounce off anybody else. Just kind of make my way out of here quick and and, and not have to engage with anybody. Instead, be a part of God's larger plan to bring us all together despite the, the sometimes disagreements and the disputed differences. Instead, come together by engaging in brotherly love within the body of believers that God has called you to. And in that way, you fulfill what God had promised in the Old Testament, that, that we would come together with people who we were otherwise incompatible with. And in that way, we also show what a great expression of love it was when Christ did that for us. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the, the revelation of Your glory. You have revealed Yourself in creation and You have revealed Yourself through the prophets, but most notably through Jesus Christ. And so Your glory is most evident in His, His life and His finished work here on this earth. But now, for some reason, You have chosen in this age to show Your glory through the church as it comes together around a common purpose, common unity through the power of the Holy Spirit and shows how we who are once estranged from both you and each other are now being brought together with people who are unlike us and in some cases incompatible with us. And Lord, we, we want to reflect your glory in that way. We want to express your glory to other people. We, we are not glorious in ourselves. We simply are in many ways, mirrors, we, re- we reflect and deflect glory from us to show a watching world. And, and Lord, we want to do that well. We want, don't want to give a distorted image of, of Your greatness and Your worth. We want to honor You as children of You. And so, Lord, would You convict us this morning and show us where we need to to welcome one another better, where we need to overcome some of our personal preferences for the sake of others and their personal sanctification and for the growth of our body and the unity and the joy and the peace that ought to be in this place. And Lord, may You give encouragement where encouragement is needed for people who are hurting and who feel alone. May they come into this place and, and, and among these people and, and feel a sense of worth and, and acceptance and, and uh, ultimately as a reflection of Christ's acceptance of them. Lord, may You encourage and challenge us this morning through Your Word and, and strengthen us for the task that we have. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.